Well, hey, everybody, and welcome back to Ghouls in the House. I'm Arnold T. Blumberg. And I'm Natalie Latovsky. And we are continuing a sort of uh, semi-connected thread of episodes that were all sort of at least partly inspired by our viewing of the documentary Memory, the Origins of Alien from Exhibit A Pictures, still as we record this, available on Shudder, that took a look at the origins of the film Alien. I don't really remember if some of what we were talking about in these episodes were things we had already found at that point, but I think I was looking at them all around the same time. Mm -hmm. And we thought, let's start talking about and watching some of these movies that are associated with Alien either before or after in setting up the circumstances that led to the creation of that film and then also a movie or two that could arguably be inspired by it or right. directly. In our first episode, we talked about, last time, we talked about Contamination, an Italian movie that was directly inspired by Alien insofar as the production team said, make us an alien. <laughs> and the stuff, which has a lot of thematic connections to some of these films. Mm -hmm. This episode, we're going to be talking about Planet of the Vampires, which is a cult classic, another Italian sci-fi horror movie, or Italian and Spanish, uh, that was directed by Mario Bava, so it's got a lot of cult following to it, not just by virtue of what it is, but also that it's a Bava film. And given that a short while back for my birthday, we talked about uh, Bay of Blood, by Bava. This will continue our nice streak of taking down Mario Bava. <laughs> Sorry, Sorry, Mario. we're just not, we're clearly not Bava fans. Uh, keep trying, though. I mean, giving it a shot. But so far, I haven't encountered a single thing. That, this, uh, Danger Diabolique. Yeah. No, not, not Bava. So, but you know, if you are, that's fine. Not judging entirely. Planet of the Vampires is one of the movies that has been credited very specifically with having inspired much of the design and mood of 1979's Alien. And Planet of the Vampires is from 65. So in this episode, we are talking about Planet of the Vampires, which I was surprised to discover I had never really seen in its entirety. I've seen clips uh, until now. And then, yes, we are going to talk about Alien, which always sends my anxiety... <laughs> really high when we do stuff like this when we talk about one of the big movies like how do you cover everything and as you tell me a million times you don't we can't yeah. and we don't we're just going to talk about it a little bit and if we recorded a dozen episodes we still wouldn't cover all the things and if you hear clicking or popping at any point during this episode i try to be a little more uh, sedate about it when we record but i'm not gonna bother trying to cover this i have a lot of notes that i took for both of these when we watched them and i'm gonna have to click back and forth so if you hear clicking i'm sorry and i also can't remove it and post the way <laughs> it's too much work so it's the, thing, the the wanting to get it right when it comes to aliens certainly should tell everyone right off the bat what an affection we both have for the film oh yeah how much well, we love it how much it's part of like the pop culture consciousness for very good reason. And I don't even think about it in these terms so much, but if I had to say just initially, it's one of those movies by virtue of when it came out in 79. Mm -hmm. I think I've talked about this before that hit cable movie channels right when we first got cable. And there's that little window of movies from 79 to roughly into 81 that are like all seared into my consciousness at the right time of my life when we first got limelight before there was even comcast and every movie from like 79 80 that stuff 
I can picture the little pictures in the limelight uh, schedule guide. And I don't even really remember clearly when was the first time I saw it. But there's, I mean, it's undeniable. The effect Alien had was visceral. And I don't think I even often give that movie as much credit as I give other things for shaping a lot of my perception of other things and appreciation for them. But it must have been a major it must have played a major role in shaping my consciousness about sci-fi and horror because it was there at that moment Mm -hmm. when I also saw like Star Trek, the motion picture and all these other things. Uh, Just the aesthetics of Alien alone are fascinating. And actually we're seeing those aesthetics back even in things like Star Trek, Strange New Worlds, the the, the Carters. That's clean where Alien looks lived in. But anyway, (laughs) we'll we'll never cover all this stuff, but we're going to start off first with, and I'm sorry, Full spoilers again, as usual. You've all seen Alien, so come on. But also for Planet of the Vampires. Uh, we're going to lead off with that one like we let off with Contamination last time, mainly because we probably don't have much to say about it. I'll tell you this. If there are any intelligent creatures on this planet, they're our enemies. Here's the um, thing with Planet of the Vampires. Much like we've seen in other sci-fi movies, like of that time there's an interesting idea there's some great ideas great ideas but there's about enough ideas to fill like a half hour twilight zone block on tv there's not really enough there to fill the whole movie to set things up it's two ships uh investigating like a completely unexplored planet there's an effect from the planet that leads crews to turn against each other. They crash. It's like some kind of distress signal that yeah, they're trying to zero in they on. They crash. They're investigating the other ship. Basically, the upshot is they're disembodied ghost-like presences on this planet that, that take over humans and attempt to use their corpses to hunt down and destroy the others or, or assume them. So... Really, the thing about this that struck me immediately is this really should have been called Planet of the Zombies. Mm-hmm. They're not vampires. I mean, okay, in a very generic, you know, very wide ranging sense, you could make an argument. But personally, I think a lot more of the visuals, particularly later when you see like the reanimated corpses coming back. Sure. Which is pretty good. Uh, the visuals are very much in line with zombie mythology, if you want to put it that way. And it should be Planet of the Zombies, but for whatever reason, Planet of the Vampires. And uh, in keeping with a certain aesthetic of a lot of Italian filmmaking at the time, everybody is dressed head to toe in black leather. Um, Which is really utilitarian for space, I think. Those collars look so annoying, like they'd be impossible to deal with. And uh, there's also an informality to the command structure so that everybody just refers to the captain as Mark all the time. And we've talked about this a lot. We're wa- I mentioned it. We're watching Star Trek Strange New Worlds right now, which as, a, as someone who grew up as, okay, if you really want to argue it, I will, for the absolute purists out there, I will have to say, yes, I'm technically a second generation Star Trek fan because I was born just after the first show aired. So I can't claim to have been there when it aired. I was born in 71. So like it I, matters. I saw it in repeats. But I was there when there was only one show. So that's that's what counts for me. And I think Strange New Worlds is just a stunning 
recapturing of the original sensibilities in a way no other Star Trek has gotten. Even Next Generation. There, start a fight right there with that one. There's a level of informality to some of these shows. Like when you see the characters who are very closely related to the bridge crew, for instance, they mm-hmm. might say Chris or they'll say, hey, Jim, you know, like that. But when circumstances warrant, they call each other by their rank, captain, because there's a formality to it. Well, especially, too, when there's like a crisis afoot, it's like you kind of get rid of any kind of personal connections and you're just talking position to position. Right. But in this, he's Mark all the time. And there's an attitude to this whole thing that suggests that there are a group of people that are just friends that grabbed a ship and decided to go out and explore. And that's clearly not what's going on, but that's the attitude. And to be honest, this is already fading in my mind where by the time we're recording this, I I don't know... I know that I didn't think too highly of anybody in this. Barry Sullivan's one, like, you know, they bring in an American or mm-hmm. some non-Italian actor to sort of lead things off very often. He's all right, but he doesn't have much charisma. Nobody does in this Nobody really. really does. And the one thing I can say about it that I agree with most of the positive commentary is... That the design of the film, the look of the movie, including the very strange, very colorful planetary landscapes that also bring to mind things like First Spaceship Venus Mm. and some Japanese like Godzilla movies of the 60s that would take us to the moon or other planets. There's a certain freedom of color that you don't get with more realistic spacescapes that's very nice and very like painterly Mm -hmm. but there's no story here to really propel any of it and i'm sorry if you're going to argue for atmosphere suspense not really a lot of that either i didn't feel not really um i think for spaceship venus is a really good comparison point too because they really tried to create what looked like okay, these are their uniforms. This is the uniform structure of a ship. If you go from this ship to the crash site of the other ship that came from the same fleet, you're walking into the same type of environment. Like there's a consistency Mm -hmm. and that's nice and all, but it's also not very interesting. Also, it's just, I'm just looking through because like I said, I made a lot of notes. I want to make sure I mentioned some of the things that I had noted that really got me about this movie. One thing we both, got about this it's like mm-hmm. you're in space right so like fuel's important particularly if you're in uncharted space like they are presumably that would mean you want to conserve as much energy as possible which means conserving the use of space in your ship there's a lot of empty wide floor space in their <laughs> ships i mean huge it's like this is just ridiculously big for a rocket ship. It doesn't make any sense. Their bridge is like the ballroom on the Titanic. And they use a lot of like, like Mystery Science Theater and others made fun of this for years. There's a lot of jargon in this movie that doesn't really make any sense. It's just, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of space talk about space things. There is like a connection to other things. It's very forbidden planet. Very much. Which you, you know, we, we got around to that one. And it, it very much feels like uh, a riff on aspects of Forbidden Planet, including the fact that there's a disembodied right. presence, you know. Although that's a much more watchable movie. Oh, well, I would agree with that. Watch that anytime. And also there was the, the Rise of the Corpses sequence. 
there was the thing of them being wrapped in plastic, which instantly made me think of Cybermen. And I'm thinking, this mm. movie, again, like we talked about about some of the others already last time. There's stuff in this that very much feels like it inspired, well, of course, we're going to talk about Alien. We are. It clearly did inspire many things. There's the derelict ship and the huge skeleton of the dead uh, alien in this mm -hmm. that's very much clearly the space jockey sequence from Alien. So, and okay. they've said that, And too. they said it. I mean, yeah, they said it. Dan O'Bannon, I think, doesn't admit to it, but everybody else does. Yeah. But, um, but, yeah, they said it, and that's there. And then there's other stuff that's going on, too. I, I mean, like... Different plane of vibrations was a comment that they made. That's how they open the door to get out of the uh, giant alien spacecraft. Right. Which honestly is probably the most interesting scene in the movie. And I can understand why that sort of inspired the structure of how they would find the other derelict ship in Alien, right? It's like... You find another ship that's crashed there. It turns out that like that ship also followed the same mm -hmm. distress call and had the same problem that they did in crash landing and not being able to get out. And he, of course, does like the worst thing to do when you're in like the wreckage of an alien spacecraft, which is touch stuff. I actually have a note right in front of me right now where she actually tells him, one of them tells him at one point that she just got a shock. He immediately touches it. <laughs> and and I have a note. Give of, me some of that. I have a note of you saying, Mark is the worst captain. <laughs> <laughs> He's just terrible. You also said something that we're go I'm going to uh, censor a bit where you said, honestly, everybody, just effing kill yourselves. <laughs> that was... And at that point that you said that, I made a note that said the movie was literally putting me to sleep. And that was true. We, I was I was nodding off from this movie. We had a moment where we, like, paused it to get a snack or a drink or something. And we looked at the timer and we're like, oh, my God, we're not even halfway through this. Like, what else is there? So, I mean, it's a cool idea. There's some really cool set pieces. That well, giant alien skeleton and the fact that the doors open on vibration. Which it's a by, cool idea. Which, by the way, Carlo Rambaldi is uncredited as a model maker on this movie. Goes mm. on to work on The Alien and, and, and King Kong and other stuff. So there's, there's actually also direct production connection. Right, there's a through line. And there was also, you made a really great observation about the core idea of the film, which is still a fine idea. The Forbidden Planet idea, which is your idea was this movie is what if the Krell really still existed? Right. Which I think when we watched Forbidden Planet, didn't you initially, I think we talked about it on the show, did, you initially yes. thought that the revelation was going to be that Morbius was like being controlled by the Krell and it turned out, no, they didn't go that route. Right. But this movie is like, what if the Krell were still around and waiting and actually- And trying to get bodies back. And actually- we just saw that Strange New Worlds episode where they did this. Mm -hmm. What was it called? The Ghosts of Illyria, I think. Only in that episode, they're benign. They are actually good beings, but they've also been like rendered into like electrical energy. And, yeah. I mean, it's a long tradition in science fiction of playing with this idea of disembodied consciousness. And it could, and it works. It's a good idea. It just, in this one, it doesn't, really click so much the whole idea of ghosts as electrical energy is the like overlapping point on the venn diagram of sci-fi and horror 
and also we're, what uh, what motivates ghost hunting kind of stuff. Like, yeah. That's what we're looking for. But it's like that's the point where they say, could there be a scientific explanation to this ghost or is there a ghostly explanation to this scientific reading? Right. So that's where it overlaps. It's an interesting concept, but it's really difficult to string into a full length movie. So what you get is fantastical ideas, cool set pieces, but acting that really didn't show up. They're just kind of phoning it in and a plot that really just doesn't even make any sense. Like what they're trying to do, who they're trying to save, why they would go off on their own, why when strange things are afoot, you leave like one guy standing outside the ship oh and my be God, like, yeah, right. oh, patrol this whole area guy and uh, let us know if something goes wrong. Just leave him to die. Just leave him to die. And it's like, it's got every mistake you could possibly make when you're on an alien planet where you already know right off the bat something's afoot, like something's going wrong. So it just, it and, didn't capture our attention. And then it, it tries to end with a final gotcha that's one of the oldest tricks in the sci-fi book mm -hmm. of revealing that the people you've been watching are not really Earth people. Like the 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 quintessential version of that, I think Harlan Ellison once did a joke about it, is like the Twilight Zone idea, which they actually did several times, which is doing the story about the post-apocalypse only to reveal that your characters are named Adam and Eve. And guess what? This <laughs> is the Garden of Eden. Yep. That kind of thing. And this movie ends with the the evil zombie vampires winning, taking over our main characters, and then setting course for, hey, what's that planet look like? Why? It's Earth. Let's go there. And, oh, these people weren't from Earth at all, all along, and now Earth is in danger from an invasion by vampire zombie ghost corpse monsters, which also sounds like a better movie than the one we just watched. But we don't get to watch that one. It, it happens off screen. Yeah. And the only thing that I thought, it, it says something that I was most excited uh, late in the movie by the fact that I recognized one of the actors in a small role and then found out that He's Massimo Riggi, who plays Solace in this, who is the one who plays Bart Fargo's buddy in Danger Death Ray. <laughs> <laughs> that's where we were by the end of this that's, film. That's what excited me at that point. I was like, hey, look, it's his boyfriend from Danger Death Ray. <laughs> And uh, yeah, so Planet of the Vampire. Sorry. I mean, one thing that this is proving every time we try is that whatever it is about Mario Bava's filmmaking that has made him a legend does not connect with us. Yeah. And I'm not discounting the things that people see in it that make it, you know, that give him that reputation. And I'm also not discounting the fact that it is provable that his work in multiple ways from this Bay of Blood uh, had effects that lingered and inspired other films that we do like a lot. But when it comes to Bava's work itself, I just can't enjoy it. it I'll wasn't, keep trying. It wasn't poorly made. It was a well-made film. It just didn't connect for us.
But then there's one that does connect. And it's one I've been seeing, you know, over and over throughout my life. And one of the many ones I'm sure I'll keep revisiting. Although it's been a while since I've seen this one. I think there was a time uh, many years ago where I was likelier to be watching Aliens over and over. Mm. As opposed to the original. And then as I got older, this one sort of took over again as the one I'd be likeliest to revisit. I think the more militaristic aspects of Aliens have suffered for me as I've Mm -hmm. gotten older. And I'm not sure I'm all that motivated to watch a movie that really like revels in ordnance and guns as this one, uh, which is a little more driven by the horror. And, you know, so it'd been a while since I watched this. And also we very specifically watched the version that I'm familiar with, which is no director's cut. No, we did. I actually showed you the little extra bit where they had that, that scene that doesn't work because it doesn't fit in the continuity at all anymore of, the thing they cut towards the end where she actually finds Dallas and, and um, I can't remember his name now, but uh, Harry Dean Stanton, where she finds them cocooned on the wall and they'd cut that. And that was like one of those like legendary lost scenes that then they found again. But Which it really did work for me. It slows down the chase at the end. It really does. The pacing is right. But also it, it would have created a whole different mythology of the alien life cycle that they then didn't do. Mm. But anyway, so we watched the movie as it's always been. And there is something so primal about it right from the beginning the Jerry Goldsmith score. Jerry Goldsmith's one of those guys that wrote the music of my childhood. And the moment the music begins with that like mournful, what is that? Is it a flute or like a bassoon or something? That 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 tone at the beginning, it's mm. so quiet and melancholy and the letters start fading in, which is one of the great examples of topography at the beginning of a movie. And there's something... It doesn't even sound like frightening or epic as much as it sounds sad. It sounds melancholy. And and of course, there is an element to that, because I think when I was little, too, what happens to Cain and all that made me sad. Not in a way I can't get past, but it's right. It's a it's a very hurtful thing, a sad thing that happens. And it feels from the beginning of the movie like, you know, you're on this path that's not good and something bad's going to happen. And it's just like this big floating city in space. And do Mm -hmm. I really need to explain Alien to all you guys? You know what I'm talking about. But one of the reasons why I think we always knew we were going to get to it, at least briefly, is that it's a haunted house movie, perfectly in keeping with this show's, like, sort of core belief it's a haunted house movie in space there's a very dracula's castle kind of feel to the nostromo like one of my favorite places on that ship is the is the room that stanton's in it and when he gets killed with the chains and all the condensation dripping and it's like it's amazing design and if you're a doctor who fan a lot of the corridors from this ship wind up in a peter davison story like a year or two later a couple years later because they were all in storage whatever it was at Pinewood or whatever Elstree, whatever studio that. they're in. And they just, they grab the grates and it's like, that's some great production value for Doctor Who. Cause suddenly this ship looks like a ship and it's like, Hey, it's alien. I love that too, though, of like that feeling where you're watching something and it feels familiar in a way you almost can't put your finger on at first until you realize like a prop or a set piece is the same 
And I kind of like that because it kind of gets you unsettled when you're watching something. One of the things that, that I made a note of at the beginning about this, and I understand we won't cover everything. I'll just, we'll talk about what we talk about and we'll see how it goes. One of the things about this movie is from the beginning of the score, and I know that we saw the documentary, so some of the things I'm saying I know echo things they said. I know I would have thought of them independently anyway, but I think they summed some things mm -hmm. up nicely. I always thought is how long it is at the beginning of the movie before you actually even get a line of dialogue. Right. It's a very quiet opening. But then also it's not quiet because you get the computer waking up. And it's also interesting, too, because... It isn't until later that you realize that what you were seeing at the beginning of the movie was the computer waking up because it knows it's getting to the place where it needs to wake them all up to pick up the alien. So in other words, that whole opening sequence of the computers going da -da 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 and waking up is mother realizing we've reached the point where I'm going to throw them all to the fire and get right. the alien. And you don't know that at the beginning, that this is a normal, that they're, they're being, you know, they're getting up out of sync with the time they're supposed to mm -hmm. and all those things the sound of the doors the sounds of this movie are so uh evocative and then like i think you said a couple times the sets are so beautiful not because they're the pristine ships of like star trek but because in keeping with the aesthetic that star wars really arguably kicked off mm -hmm. it's the concept of the lived in space universe a place that's real this is like a big truck in space right i mean basically they're long-haul truckers yeah and this is their truck and it's such a very different feel from what you get in a lot of the sort of speculative oh we're going to explore the unknown Space sci-fi and even Planet of the Vampires was like that. Everything was yeah. like, it was a very structured, they're the intrepid crew going out to like explore this distress signal in space. These are people who are just trying to earn a paycheck. Like yeah. they are just on a job. Their job is they go to this spot in space. They pick up cargo. They go into deep sleep. They go back to another point in space. They get woken up and they unload the cargo. They and smoke. They... they drink coffee. <laughs> yeah. I am cold. Still with us, Brett? Clay. Yeah. Oh, I feel yes. dead. Anybody ever tell you you look dead? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, right. I just forgot something, man. Uh, before we dock. I think we ought to discuss the bonus situation. Right. Brett and right. I, we think we ought to, we deserve full shares, right, right baby? You see, Mr. Park and I feel that the bonus situation has never been on a, an equitable level. Well, you get what you contracted for like everybody else. Yes, but everybody else gets more than us. Oh, mother wants to talk to you. They, like, have, you know, magazine cutouts pasted to the wall. Right. Like, you're on a ship, like a, a boat Ship. Which, by the way, also, given all the sexual politics that come up in discussing this film mm. and, and that are all there, from the design of the alien to the metaphor of violation that goes throughout, there's also this element of the very consistent, arguably normal, sadly normal aspect of a very toxic environment for the women working on that ship because mm -hmm. the guys have made sure pinups are everywhere. It's a guy's ship. Yeah. That's the world they have to work in. The cool thing about it to me, too, is that I guess just because of the nature of 
moving through space and how it is, they still do have like a science crew who's on board. So it's like all these long haul trucker ships mm-hmm. are still going to have a handful of scientists on board because it's space, man. Like you don't know what you're going to run into. You don't know if somebody's right. going to need medical care that the computer can't handle. So there's still that element of like having that speculative sci-fi in there. And in fact, really when they get into sick bay and you're dealing with medical and they're trying to do surgery, like that's the most pristine spot on the ship. Like that's your clean room. Yeah. So that's sort of like the doctor's cabin where they operate. And then everything else is like the bed of a truck. Well, it's also, there's also, you mentioned science stuff. Another one of the other things is that Ash being sort of in on the, the dark plan mm-hmm. that's already pre-programmed is that their senior representative for science can't be trusted, which is sad. And like you even point out at one point, Cartwright's character, Lambert, she says, get out of there twice. Nobody listens to her. Yeah. They don't listen to her. They don't really listen to Ripley until the end. And well, da- they don't really have a choice because they're running out of command staff. And Tom scared as Dallas just wants to defer to whatever gets him like the least confrontation and, and home. So he doesn't really care. So there's, there's the the politics of the the crew feel so real. The performances are great. There's that whole thing again, very as like people would say from Golden Age of Hollywood, very Hawksian, where people talk over each other. It's very mm, natural. Yeah, nobody's waiting for their cue. You feel very much like you're a fly on the wall on this ship. Even, and also, like, the documentary mentions how weird it is. I never questioned it as a kid, but, yeah, there is the weirdness of the wind. The wind blows through the ship a few times. And it's like, well, it's a haunted house, one. Mm-hmm. But second, if there's a differential in pressure, that that could happen. But also, who cares? <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, I mean, It's really, a great effect. One of the things that's so cool about it is that there are these very claustrophobic spaces. The mm-hmm. hallways seem pretty narrow. They all cram around one table and they have to eat. And yet you also get the feel of there are multiple decks to this ship. Like when the acid bores through the floor, you realize it's going down multiple decks. When you have like the sort of bowels, the inner workings of the ship that almost feel like steampunky. Like how is the ship even operating this way? You're like in the bowels of a steam liner at this point. But it just sort of tells you, hey, this place is like way bigger than you even realize. And it's for a purpose. It all then sets up the fact that in the end, she's on a timer trying to like set a bomb and run through this whole ship. And you've, without realizing it, already been conditioned to see, hey, this ship is a huge place. Mm -hmm. Like when you have to maneuver through it, when you're trying to find like, one alien creature in this ship it's not as easy as you'd think because it's a huge place full of big open rooms and little narrow ducts and like it all connects to each other by the way i i um you mentioned the sick bay like the medical area Mm -hmm. it's the cleanest area on the ship it's also the one that by virtue of that gets to look the most like the star trek and sort of 2001 aesthetic before it and there are a lot of similarities and i also had that book oh god i want to say his name is dave addy but um the typeset in the future book which Mm -hmm. just fascinated me 
where he does a lot of breakdown on all of the pictograms and topography visible on the ship in Alien. It's a stunning array of completely made-up pictograms and uh, characters totally designed by that team to make it seem real, but it's its own thing, and yet it's totally consistent across the doors and the, the controls. And it occurs to me and you just saw it recently for the first time, it never, and I never noticed it until now, both this and motion picture, came, Star Trek the motion picture came out in 79, and there are a lot of similarities between that medical bay mm. and some of the sets on the refit Enterprise, and both movies have a medical scanner scene where the crew is looking at like a display up on the wall of someone in distress laying on a table mm-hmm. while they look at the readout. And it's interesting, like both of them hit the same year and have a lot of the same design aesthetics about this is how we're getting the information across is this crew is looking at like a scan. A lot of similarities. I mean, if we were really to go into a very deep historical dive, which obviously this isn't it, there was also probably some kind of medical technology at that point in time in reality that kind of inspired that thought of the full body scan, like whether that's kind of like a more modern, maybe like an MRI MRI, type technology. So you can kind of see how somebody could take the reality of what's possible then and project it forward and say, well, where would this be, you know, in a hundred years in a thousand years, whatever it might be. And um, two people could probably kind of come to that same place at the same time that way. And I'm just looking at my notes to see what other things I want to throw out. I already mentioned the big rain room, which is what I think of it as. May have influenced Hellraiser. Certainly may have influenced Event Horizon and, and other movies where people are on a trip in space straight to hell. Because a lot of this feels like that. When they land on the, the and find the derelict ship, and that first shot of that derelict ship, which is very Dracula's Castle kind of stuff, is just horrifying beyond an ability. to. It's so viscerally wrong mm. like that horseshoe design and it's just wrong and and then going into it and it's all organic and the eggs and the, i mean everything everybody already knows it just just something so wrong about all that and that space jockey and speaking for everybody that grew up with this movie no we i well i don't know about all of you but i didn't grow up watching the space jockey and alien thinking you know what i wish I wish someone would come along and explain to me where this space jockey came from and what his name was and where he was going and what is the mythology of the space jockeys. No, I didn't care. It was just a cool figure that looked like an alien fossilized in a chair and it meant there was a bigger universe out there we didn't know and Mm -hmm. that was scary and exciting and I didn't care if I never knew where the space jockey came from. I think Alien in particular is a movie that really hammers home the lesson of, like, just don't touch the thing. <laughs> That's basically, They should have put out the first poster, should have had that egg image. Don't touch the thing. Don't, don't touch the thing. It's like, you see this... First of all, you see this ship, and obviously they must be a certain type of personality to be out there in space doing this as a job. Because they're not the exploration crew, they're the space truckers. Like, mm-hmm. this is not what they do it's not their mission so you see this big ship this like foreboding thing 
no, I am not going inside of that. Like, I I'm I am not built for this type of job, clearly. I'm not going to go in the Because you look at it show. and you're like, I'll wait in the car. Yes. <laughs> like, that's not going to happen. I mean, arguably, Newt waits in the car at the beginning of Aliens. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a deleted scene. Never mind. Yeah, you um, know. But, but yeah, like her they, parents go into that thing and they wait in the car. Yeah, it's like, and you go in and then you see the complexity of this. Yeah. And then you're like, I'm just going to touch a few things. I'm going to reach through the strange field that reacts to my presence and feel for the eggs that are also glowing and have something inside them. There's like a laser containment field and a mist. Yeah. First of all, a mist is never a sign that yeah. there's something good going on there. Part of the Planet of the Vampires connection, by the way, too. Is the mist. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there's elements. The, the, the mist is not a good sign. Mist is bad. Mist means turn around. I mean, entire organic alien spaceship floor of eggs is also not a good sign. The laser containment field is We're also good. not a good sign. Turn around, walk out, put a sign on the outside of the ship saying, don't touch the thing. <laughs> and then go back home. Just turn the do not disturb sign around yeah. on the front of the ship door. Thank you, Space Jockey. And then there are like a few other things that I just have. I'm just going through my notes chronologically. Uh, this is just one of those things, uh, confession time for me. My entire childhood, I never realized that Ash is supposed to be filled with milk. I mean, you see him drinking milk the whole time. But all the years I grew up and like, I always thought the whole point of like the milk was that androids apparently run on some kind of white goop. There's goop again. Um, <laughs> I never realized that it was supposed to probably be that that's all the milk he's drinking. That's why it's in there. And then now I'm seeing it. I realize, oh, that's what the point is. Like, And also maybe is he designed, are they all designed, these androids, to like function on milk like that's all they run on? I don't know. But it's just, it's, I never thought of that. And then that's really weird. Um, I mean, everything about him is, is weird. But the fact that, like, nobody on the ship knows that he's an android is yeah. weird. And uh, just another thing I made a note of is that uh, one of my favorite eerie, I mean, because the other thing, too, for our purposes talking about it, is it's not just a great science fiction movie, it's a great eerie horror movie mm-hmm. with a lot of wonderful suspense. Um, like I love the whole sequence after. I mean, we could talk about the chestburster scene, but I almost feel like I don't need to talk about that part. There are probably whole podcasts dedicated yeah, to that. It's like we all know that's that's like cinematic perfection. The it's moment, amazing. It's just amazing for a multitude of reasons. I always kind of like the moments after it where they actually still think they're dealing with a tiny little thing. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's it's an it like. A cool little window of time in the movie before they realize, oh my god, it's even worse than we thought. That this th- and they think, all right, now we gotta like mop up this little creature. And it's like, no, it's it's worse. But there's also the moment where when the thing gets Harry Dean Stanton, uh, I keep saying that. I mean, I've only seen the movie a million times, and yet I can remember most of the character names, but I can't remember Harry Dean Stanton. Brett, I don't know, right. So when he gets him uh, in the rain room, the moment of that scene that always gets me that I love is Jonesy watching the death. And to me, it's like just another indicator of how cats are 
just soulless monsters. It's peak cat right yeah, there. Yeah, the cat just has this cold stare watching, and like you're seeing the death from its point of view, like, well, that's one human down. And I don't know what it is about that, but it's like, it's the perfect choice when you also may have been making a choice of, well, we don't want to actually show the full thing or right. have the ability to. What do we do? And the idea of cutting to the cat and its perspective is amazing. And creates such a feeling of dread that I don't think you would have gotten if you just actually showed the death scene. Mm -hmm. The cat watching it is much better. <laughs> and I'll also add, it drives me crazy that everybody calls that the rain room. Like, well, but I mean, it is people refer to it that way, and they'll have all these debates of like, how could it be raining inside a ship? And it's frigging condensation, it's condensation. you guys. Yeah. Like, it's just. The machine works in the bowels of a ship. By the way, another thing that comes up in this that's fascinating is like the technology in this is amazing. The design mm -hmm. is beautiful. One of the things you mentioned uh, when we're watching it this time that I agree is part of that lived in thing is there's a sense of functionality to all of it that feels really, really effective and convincing. You believe that this ship operates. Right. You know, that everything operates. The chairs that rotate and go in on tracks and like, everything feels like this is how you would design it. This makes sense. And then part of that, too, was when they go in to talk to Mother, it's that big room where the chair spins around, locks you in, and there's the little screen. And one of the things you pointed out was that's a really tiny TV screen. It's so small. All the way on the other side of the room that you're supposed to be reading. And like you've pointed out in other things, it's fascinating sometimes what people in science fiction storytelling failed to foresee. Mm -hmm. And of course, the number one thing on that list always is the internet and network computing. No one really foresaw that. In that and wireless technology. Wireless, right. Yes, exactly. And in this case, it really feels like no one even thought about widescreen televisions. Like, why would you're sitting in a room where you're basically forced to sit in that chair mm -hmm. a distance away? Why would the whole wall in front of you not be a display screen? Or even if you can't think of the idea of a large display screen or you're trying to do everything practically, obviously, and you can't do that, right. why wouldn't you make a bank? Make a bank. And I mean, again, it's a movie. Have, people have done that. You make a it. bank. Yeah. I mean, like like I was just talking to you recently about the fact that on, uh, if I keep coming back to this, I'm sorry. It's right top of mind these days. Like on Strange New Worlds, they're talking about how they designed the Enterprise sets now where everything is live in the right. moment. Like, you know, when they need a display, the display is actually there for the actors. And years ago, it was a big deal in the movies where they came up with this idea of running film loops on the TV screens. It wasn't 100% live, but when a shot had to be done, they could go, okay, go, and they'd run a film loop on the TV screen to make it look like it was live. Right. Then before that, it had to all be either post-production or maybe they were doing like animated stuff on a or on a card or drawing something and putting it on it like right it's a movie fake the look of a big like why would you not think they'd need a bigger screen to look at and yet but that's my point that's the disconnect that you know you can't fault them for it because no one was thinking in that mode cuz they certainly were considering functionality within the rest of the ship and the way everything is structured the way it works even down to the fact that like their food is just stored in the same kind of like Tupperware containers that you would have in your own pantry. And you think, yeah, sure. Why wouldn't it be yeah. like all of those like 
spacey things where they have these like single packaged like foil wrapped whatever. It's like where does all the trash go from all of that? Like why isn't there are just they, are they pushing it out into space like yeah. the alien? Like why is there not just a big like clear plastic container full of cornflakes? And like in this case there is. There and is. that makes sense. But the, the teeny tiny little screen and the fact that you sit so far away from it. Right. That's like the thing to me where I'm like it's the one moment where I get pulled out of the reality right. of it. Right. And I was mentioning it, like uh, shooting it out the airlock like the alien. Mm -hmm. That's still, to this day, that is the worst shot in the movie. And, I, and I, you know, I mean, this movie is a stunning piece of work yeah. and on a million levels. The acting is, like, phenomenal. Everybody is so natural. And the 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 rapport with each other and and not just rapport but also the the attention like when you have um for instance brett and yafet koto as parker clearly it's the lower decks right it's the right the guys who are like they they have fun needling ripley and and bothering people about the fact that they're the functionaries the engineers and they got to be down the the tension they also build buffer time into they into do their work they do um so all of that works I, I love the, the again, you talk about Ian Holm, you're talking about what, like Rada and talking about a fine tradition of Shakespearean acting. This guy is just phenomenal. And one of my favorite moments, I think I told you when we were watching it, it's the little things. It's the nuance sometimes, not mm. the big moments everybody remembers. For me, one of my favorite moments for Ash is when he's designed the little uh, detectors and Ripley asks him over his shoulder, what are they key off of? And he has this little like head tilt and sigh before he tells her micro changes in air density. And he, he just looks so exasperated, which, again, in the documentary, we saw experts talking about how he embodies a certain evidently pre-programmed misogyny that could only have come from the people that set him up. Yeah, you know? I mean, it was one of the more fascinating portions of the documentary of basically understanding that artificial intelligence is ultimately still programmed by real people. So for the android to exist, humans had to create the behaviors and the structures and the way that the synapses fire and talk to each other. And it's a big debate right now in computing of how do you keep from programming your own biases into what should be a randomized structure should be its own independently like structured thought that it, it goes through and ash clearly was programmed by someone who did not have such high opinions of women and who's also a nazi mm -hmm. because when he sums up the alien he has that one line where they said like you admire it and he said i admire its purity you still don't understand what you're dealing with do you perfect organism its structural perfection is matched only by its hostility. You admire it? I admire its purity. A survivor, unclouded by conscience, remorse, or delusions of morality. We could argue that the androids in the alien universe, like this bishop and the others that come later, right? they appear to function on a level that suggests, I don't know, I don't know, because I never, I, full disclosure, beyond... I, I did see Alien 3 and 4 
I had lower and lower opinions about each You've one. You've seen more of them yeah. than I have. And then I never saw any of the Aliens vs. Predator stuff, and I've only seen scenes of Ridley Scott's what I think are sadly very misjudged attempts to try to revisit this whole thing. Mm. So I'm not interested, really. There may be an impression that there's a certain level of sentience. I don't know to what extent we could really consider Android as just a word they used not necessarily meaning it exactly, but maybe he's... Because I think that... I think uh, doesn't Yafakoto at one point actually say he's a robot? Right. But, you know, he's always referred to as an android, and those are different things. Um, so I don't know to what extent we could say Ash is a product of his own thinking or beyond the programming. But if not, whoever programmed him is a Nazi and a misogynist. And clearly a dangerous person. And also really representative of the actual establishment when it comes to the corporate structure. Well, sure. Because it becomes clear that, like, this is the mission. Yes. The mission is to retrieve this. And they don't really care about expending, like, human lives in order to do it. We also don't know how much detail they already had. One of the things I had never thought of until this time watching it that I was talking about was... I wasn't sure, like, does Ash already know a lot more about this than we think? Mm-hmm. And, like, part of it what would be, do they already know that they'd have to impregnate a human to bring one back? Did they know that that was already going to happen and and figured, well, one of them will get it? Or did they have a more generalized idea? Because he's, like, that tracker, did he know already what to design the thing to track? Is he lying? But we don't know. I mean, part of it, too, is that classic maneuver of having the information be sort of classified and inaccessible to anyone else on the ship. And I got the impression he did know more about it. Maybe the idea was get one inside of someone, get them into, like, deep freeze, and it should freeze it. That, like, if they went back to sleep, when they got back, you could keep that person on ice Except they don't freeze them. Right. Which Parker keeps saying, why don't they freeze them? And he doesn't. Which also makes me wonder, and I'm just thinking this in the moment. Mm. This is more like maybe leaning toward the idea is Ash thinking independently. Is Ash genuinely really a fascinated scientist about this creature, impressed by it, and therefore could he conceivably have been going off the, the planned mission a little bit and wanted to see it in operation? Like, wants to see the the xenomorph, which, of course, they don't have that word in this one. But right. Wants to see the full creature, you know, out and about. Because that, like we were talking about when we were watching it, if the company wants that alien, having it impregnate someone, burst out, grow, and start killing everybody on the ship doesn't seem like the best way to ensure you're going to get one back. I think that maybe that's, like, the secondary mission it's like maybe mission mark one is see if you can essentially safely transport one of these eggs without hatching it oh and if that doesn't go well secondary mission mission number two is learn as much as you can about the creature what it does how it grows how it operates because basically ash as well is expendable to them so it's okay if the ship like has no one in it 
right. by the time you're done. And also, arguably, you have to wonder if they hadn't gone after Ash, would the alien have gone after Ash? Because Ash is part of the machinery. Ash is not a life form. Yeah, we never do actually see those two in a room together, so we don't know what would have happened. So it's entirely All- possible he could just be observing what it does to people and then ride home with it. I mean, the Queen tears Bishop apart in Aliens, but... That's the sequel. That's James Cameron, so it has no relevance right. whatsoever to what the first film intended. Mm-hmm. I wanted to throw out, I, I briefly mentioned it, and it's like, look, this movie is genius on a lot of levels. It built on a lot, a long tradition of movies stretching from Thing from Another World to It, The Terror from Beyond Space, Night of the Blood Beast, which oh, is yeah. a mystery science theater, uh, and Queen of Blood, which will shortly be on the show, Yep, uh, as well as a number of others. And uh, even Doctor Who got into the mix and Ark in Space and a bunch of stuff. So it, it, it's unassailable on a lot of levels. It's, it's an amazing movie and it's endlessly fascinating for people that want to explore many things about it that we clearly already don't have time to talk about and have only briefly touched on. It is very much a haunted house in space movie. It has a fascinating look at sexual politics turned into very powerful metaphors and... Then it ends with the scene where the guy in the alien suit is bouncing around the way too overlit outside of the ship set on a soundstage with water dripping into the camera to simulate rocket exhaust. And that scene to me just looks awful. Like every aspect of that scene, especially the part where the alien suit guy just kind of like bounces back into the ship. It's a terrible, terrible shot that ends a phenomenal movie. Mm. And it's always the weird thing where I thought, you know, I am a, a very staunch enemy of the George Lucas school of keep manipulating things until you die. But if you could, going back and fixing that or finding some way to fudge that moment, you don't even need to see it outside. It it, it prolongs the scene too much. In fact, just forget it. Just do the expelled out of the thing, it's gone. Don't show us any of that. That that part is terrible. Uh, and it's a shame because it adds a weird note at the end to what's otherwise a stunning piece of work. Uh, and one of the things that I noticed in looking this up after, and I think we also saw it mentioned in the documentary, was, um, well, first of all, I'll mention one thing. Last episode, we talked about contamination. That was directly inspired by this in that the producer said, make us an alien. Correct. And there it is. There's the one where the eggs get back to Earth, by the way. <laughs> right. But Alien, for good and bad, was then responsible for a slew of early 80s movies that I remember vividly from cable, never having seen all of them, but certainly having seen scenes from many of them, and who now, for some reason, are all of them, almost to a, a, a film, all of them currently available courtesy of Scream Factory TV, <laughs> but that seem to all take the wrong lesson from Alien entirely. Mm. And in watching Alien said, you know what it appears audiences really want is people violated by aliens and impregnated with little aliens. Yeah. And it's like, if that's what you took away from it, like that basically everybody is chasing the chestburster scene, or actually arguably the scene before that, then they made a mistake. And yet, that led to 4,000 Roger Corman and other movies, uh, including two that came out in 81, Galaxy of Terror and Inseminoid. There's a title for you. 
1982's Forbidden World, Extro from 1982, and boy, do I remember the pictures from that in, like, I think it was in Fangoria at the time. And we just saw this one, Dead Space, with Mark Singer in 91. Oh, bless. But, like, all of these, all of these... Dead Space is, like, alien made in your high school gym. Yeah, tons of, and far more, even lower budget than that. And, uh, but the other fascinating thing that I never, ever thought of but makes so much sense is that this comes out in 79 and it never, well, I'm not going to say never because maybe there are people that have always thought this. And then like me, when I thought of something, will say like, you know, you may not have thought of it, but I always thought so. Okay. I didn't think of this, mm. but you know, we always talk about it in terms of the lineage of science fiction and like body horror and science fiction, horror and haunted house movies. But also alien came out in 79 one year before, Halloween came out. Black Christmas in 74. Then all of a sudden, Friday 13th comes out in 1980. In many respects, Alien is also a slasher movie. And sets up our small group of characters who are being picked off by a killer. And we have a final girl. And I never really thought much about the fact that Alien should be in the list of movies that help to shape the slasher genre. And I feel bad that it probably seems very obvious to a lot of other people, but I never thought about it that way. Well, I think also what keeps it from maybe being quite that obvious is that we do tend to put these types of films in certain boxes. Yeah. Right? Like, people would say, oh, of course I would put Alien in the horror box and in the sci-fi box. But then within those boxes, there are sub boxes, right? Oh, but my right? God, I've seen for years and years, for decades, I have seen fans arguing like red faced with whether Alien is a science fiction or a horror movie as if you could only say one. I've <laughs> seen those arguments long before social media. And it's like it's it's mind numbing, right, to think that it's both. It's both. But I think part of it is that when you start getting into subcategories within those sort of overarching categories, people universally tend to think of a slasher as a very human film. Right. And it doesn't mean that they couldn't have been inspired by something that was a creature film, but people don't always really think of like the creature feature as a slasher because it's in a different subcategory within the category well i mean if i were gonna define like you know like all the years i spent defining what's a zombie movie or not right if i were gonna define the rules of what like officially and there is none right no but what what we think officially constitutes a slasher i would not say alien is one for exactly that reason i would always feel like a slasher movie by definition is a more human-driven story. Right. Although that often includes... The thing is, we we evidently are also okay with it being a dream demon. So... Yeah, he, I mean, and eventually Jason's a zombie, yeah. too. So. so how much further off is it to have, you know, like a seven, eight-foot-tall alien creature with two sets of teeth? You know, it's that's also... He's still a slasher character. I mean, I think ultimately the lesson there is that we shouldn't really have to define it by any like specific parameters that a lot of it comes down to essentially the commercialization of it like mm. how do you market this film do you market it as science fiction do you market it as horror what's the label that you put on it when you put it on the shelf you know to sell like where is this going in the store you know this is a whole other topic 
for another time, but it's also fascinating when we go looking for something to put on. Yeah. Like one of the things we've, I think we've already talked about on the show too, is just like the proliferation of streaming services has also led to a proliferation of so many different structures and interfaces and nobody gets it right and there's no consistency and you have to relearn what they want you to do for every one of them. But it's also fascinating that even when it comes to this, these genres have always been treated like, you know, the stuff in the back of the store, you mm-hmm. know, and sometimes they're lumped together and sometimes not. And it's fascinating when you go to them, which ones list science fiction and horror separately and which of them just lump it all together in one. Or lump one with something else. So, like, there are some ones that we look through where it's horror slash sci-fi. But I know we were looking on HBO Max yesterday and horror is its own category, but then they have fantasy slash sci-fi. And sometimes science fiction just gets dumped into action. Yeah. And and none of, and, you know, right, none of it makes any difference in Not the really. end. It's, it, they're just labels. But it's fascinating to see the thinking. And very often the thinking is kind of driven by what they think is palatable to, like, the middle-of-the-road viewer. Right. You know. But I think really the lesson to kind of draw from all of that is that as we're doing here with this run of movies we're looking through it makes so much more sense to look at a film based on its influence and its moment in time Mm -hmm. and alien very much is like this node like in film history where you can see the elements that come into this node and the the inspiration it draws from, especially in science fiction, I think a lot of the inspiration comes from both film and literature that's very distinctly sci-fi, but then it builds on that, draws from that, creates something new that is sort of genre-bending and it doesn't really fit in one place or another and it becomes its own node in film history and it's why it's something that people have celebrated for so long because it has all these branches that come off of it that start sparking all these new ideas and these new things in many different genres in many different directions and it's certainly why we can't cover everything in one episode nor should anybody feel like an obligation to because that's kind of the beauty of it thanks for listening to ghouls in the house featuring natalie b latovsky and arnold t blumberg you can find Natalie on Twitter at NB Litovsky, that's NB Lit of Scott, and Arnold at Dr. The Dead, that's me. Our movies this episode were Planet of the Vampires, 1965, and Alien, 1979. In this outer space world, the living dead try to escape into life. Ghouls in the House is an ATV publishing production. Check out our other podcasts, books on your favorite fictional worlds, and other assorted goodies at www.atvpublishing.com. I can't lie to you about your chances, but you have my sympathies.